Thanks, that was really beautiful. So we're going to pray, and then we'll look at the scriptures this morning, but uh, one quick announcement you might be interested in knowing is that Contarinos had their baby early, and so uh, Elijah was born a couple days ago, so mom and baby are doing well, more details forthcoming, but just remember them uh, in your prayers as well. Well, let's pray together, John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This Advent season, Lord God, we come to praise you and to ponder these wonderful mysteries. We praise you, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, for your coming, our Lord Jesus Christ, from the glory of eternity to a sinful world and a sinful humanity to save, to give eternal life, to cause us to know the eternal God and Father, to cause us to know you, Jesus, as the eternal Son, to know God as Holy Trinity and loving and saving, to know the glory of God and to be able to worship in spirit and in full truth. We pray this morning that as we look into the Gospel of John, that you would show us more and give us more to meditate and to worship upon. And we pray these things for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Well, Advent season begins today, so we're taking a break from the Gospel of Luke, which we've been studying, and we're going to be looking at the glory of Christ from various passages in the prologue to the Gospel of John, as well as a couple other passages. So today we'll be looking at just the opening paragraph, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and the Word in creation. Next week we'll look at the true light has come in verses 6 to 13, and then we'll finish the prologue the following week on the glory of the incarnation of the word. And then we'll continue by looking at a part of John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God. And finally, on Christmas Day, which is Sunday this year, uh, we'll be looking at the mission of Jesus, the Son of God, from John chapter 3, a very well-known passage. So as we look at this book of John, I want to give you a brief little introduction to it. And notice that it begins and ends very similarly in John chapter 1, verse 18, the end of the prologue and the introduction with these words, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And as we'll even learn today, the Apostle John wrote his gospel so that we would know God, the only true God, and his son, Jesus Christ. And he closes his gospel similarly in John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that's why we're looking at the Apostle John's writings this Advent season, 
You know, he wrote his gospel account in the midst of a very interesting context in the world. So much was going on in regard to the mission of the gospel itself. It had already started taking over the world and expanding beyond the places of surrounding, surrounding Israel. And the Gentile mission was expanding, and he's writing during this time frame. It's also the Apostle John is writing at the same time when Gnostic thought was starting to emerge and challenges to Christianity were coming. And so in his gospel, he writes about the nature of Jesus Christ and the nature of true spirituality. What is true spirituality? And he covers that. And of course, he writes in light of the destruction of the temple, which had happened in AD 70, and so many changes in the history of redemption that would fall out because of God's work in all of that. And just like the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he's very purposefully selective in telling us the story and the ministry of Jesus during those three years of his life on earth from AD 29 to 33 to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that you may believe in him and so that you may have life in his name. And that's why we're looking at this this Advent season. It's my prayer and hope that as we look at the beginning of the Gospel of John, that we'll start to apprehend more of the glory of Christ and that we'll delight more greatly in the fact that we've been united to him by faith and that we have an ongoing communion or fellowship with him. Those are the two goals. So keep those in mind that you would apprehend more of the glory of Christ and delight yourself more in who he is. That can be what you pray for as you listen and as you take the scriptures home to meditate on yourselves. And so we begin with these famous words at the beginning of the book of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, the Apostle John wants us to know above all this morning that Jesus Christ is the eternal God, and he is the creator of all things. The Word, as we know, as we read through this, is our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we're talking about. And in verses 1 and 2, we see the Word described in relation to the Godhead and that he existed eternally prior to creation. And then in verses 3 to 5, we see the Word in relation to creation and that he has been communicating ever since then. A little bit more about the Gospel of John. It's a very interestingly organized book. The first half of the book, John puts forth evidence for Jesus' Messiahship, and he has seven selected signs that he goes through to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And interspersed in there, we have the seven I am sayings as well, and there are seven witnesses that support all of this and Jesus' claims. But then the second half of the book is all about preparing his disciples, even his church even you and me, even Calvary Evangelical Free Church, preparing us as a new community for our work that we have to do. Because as we read in the Gospel of John, the Father sent the Son who accomplished the work, 
And then that sent one sends the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. So this prologue, verses 1 through 18 at the beginning of John's gospel, speaks about the excellency of Jesus Christ, the Word of God, and His incarnation, and His glory, and His grace toward the world. And that's what we are here to meditate upon this Advent season. So first, let's take a look at the Word in relation to God and existing eternally prior to creation. There are three statements that are made right away about the Word in verse 1. And then after that, in verse 2, we have the statement about the eternality of this Word. Now, it begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, something we all know, we've all memorized. But I want you to notice some things here, and I'm going to be pointing out a lot of these types of things for you, so hopefully they're helpful. And that is, John opens his gospel, we think very differently than the other gospel writers open their gospel accounts. But actually, they're very, very similar. So this is the opening to Matthew's gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew proceeds to give a genealogy, and then he tells the story of the birth of our Messiah, which we'll, of course, read about as we go through our Advent celebrations. Mark begins his gospel this way. He opens, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he jumps right into the ministry that Jesus had while he came to this earth. Very simple, short openings. Luke opens his gospel, very lengthy, of course, as we're studying Luke, Luke but this is how he opens. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And then he talks about the birth narrative. Now, John provides no birth narrative. John provides no genealogy. John doesn't even, I mean, doesn't even jump right into Jesus' ministry, but he goes further back into eternity before creation. John is speaking of an event, of a beginning, of a new beginning in the history of redemption with God's incarnation. It's a new creation, if you will, is how John sees Jesus coming on the scene. And so his reference point is the book of Genesis, as the Bible itself actually opens up. And notice carefully the similarity of language, the parallels, even the words and the themes. The Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And as the creation story continues, we know that soon life is created. Themes that John picks up on in his gospel. And so when we get to the prologue of John, 
we should see that this is an intricately crafted opening, poetic and beautiful and filled with doctrine that abounds to the glory of God. And much research, many books, many articles have been written on just these first few statements at the opening of John. That's because doctrine is beautiful. And Jesus is beautiful. And the identity of this word, as John opens his gospel, is saved to the end of the prologue. So if you were reading this for the very first time, you wouldn't know who that word is. But we know who he is. He is Jesus Christ. And if you look down, starting in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now much can be said about the term, the word, but John's prologue, the fundamental meaning is Christological. In other words, it's about Jesus Christ. And it's emphasizing the fact of divine self-expression. As one pastor scholar put it very simply for us, I think he calls the Son of God the Word simply because first, he's the eternal wisdom and will of God. And secondly, because he is the express image of his purpose. For just as in men, speech is called the expression of the thoughts, so it is not inappropriate to apply this to God and say that he expresses himself to us by his speech or word. Jesus is the divine self-expression of God. He is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity. And it couldn't be any more purposeful, open expression of who God is than the very incarnation of the Son of God. Now, perhaps there are other backgrounds that are in the mind of the author here at the opening. Perhaps there's some background in the book of Proverbs. And we think about the role of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. Wisdom is a type of the word or a or preview of the Christ to come. And the suggestive analogies in the book of Proverbs are all over the place. And they're predictions of the incarnation, even from the Old Testament. Wisdom being personified, and you think about the opening to that book, especially chapter 8, and throughout church history it has been referenced, is very suggestive of the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's a preparation. It's a foundation. It's a vehicle to communicate and build anticipation in us as we read through the Scriptures. Perhaps another background to why the Apostle John chose the word, the word, is the contextualization to contemporary Hellenistic thought or Greek thought, declaring that the word is not just some principle. He is a person, not a power but God himself. And yet the clearest background is the book of Genesis. It's a new beginning in the history of redemption, the incarnation of the Son of God. And it is exactly why 
the Apostle John chose to begin with these words in the beginning. So the three statements in verse 1 begin with the declaration of this pre-incarnate existence of the Word, our Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Word, saying, in the beginning was the Word. In Scripture, as we read about it, the Word of God is powerfully effective, and His Word is seen as close and personal, but now the Word is used in a different sense about a person who has appeared. The revelation of God has actually come. And because of this, our understanding has become new. God has revealed himself in a new way, fully, as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. This is the basic theological reality that is being explored in the Gospel of John. The Apostle John makes it very clear he will cover this theme repeatedly, chapter after chapter, to bring us to the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's simply the question. So who is Jesus? Well, according to the Apostle John, he's God. How is that possible? Because God is a trinity. And there's much more to come. This is just the introduction. This is just something to give the reader a taste of what is in his gospel. The second statement is that the word was with God. And it means, yes, a place of coexistence eternally together. But much more than that, the word in the Greek emphasizes an orientation of an intimate relationship. That the word was before God in a relationship. They're distinct persons, but as Jesus himself would say, the Father and I are one. And John, you see, the apostle, makes the closest possible connection between Jesus and the Father, yet holds them as distinct persons in the Godhead, who is one God, not two gods, not three gods. The third statement is that the word was God. It means that he continually was God. That is, outside of time and space, existing as God himself, eternally of divine nature. In other words, another translation, maybe some of you have this in yours, where it says, and the word was fully God. That's also a very viable translation of the original language. Fully God. He's not just possessing divine nature, like Jesus Christ sort of has some godlike stuff in him, or that he sort of happens to look like God, or that he's some kind of a divine emanation, like the Greek mythology would like to promote, or the Arian heresy, which is around today in the Jehovah's Witnesses. He's not some divine emanation. He truly is fully God himself. The language of Scripture is very carefully chosen by God and by the Apostle John to preserve monotheism, that we believe in one God, and yet expand our understanding that this one God, this one true God, is a mysterious triune being. Each person is fully God, yet there is only one God. 
This is the mystery of worship for us as God's people. And then we get to verse 2, the eternal word. He was in the beginning with God. And so this verse concludes and summarizes the very opening statement of the gospel. This should be the most intriguing of all the gospels when you read the opening. We know who he is, who this he is that's being introduced to us. He is the one who was in the beginning with God. Another pastor scholar remarks on the use of the word word and says that this word, word, alike for Jew and Gentile, represents the ruling fact of the universe and represents that fact as the self-expression of God. The Jew will remember that by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. The Greek will think of the rational principle of which all natural laws are particular expressions. Both will agree that this logos is the starting point of all things. But you see, the Apostle John used this term so that all would recognize and understand the most basic meaning. So the Apostle John is both being an apologist and an evangelist at the same time. And he's going to proceed to fill out the description of this personal logos, God the Son, Jesus Christ. And we'll be learning so much about God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John if we were to do the whole Gospel, maybe someday, and go through it. But even in this prologue, in Advent, if you take these first 18 verses and you spend time in them, and you read them slowly and prayerfully and worshipfully, your life's going to be transformed because you're going to come to know who Jesus Christ is at a whole new level. So we learn at the very opening this word in relation to the Godhead and that he is existing eternally prior to creation. Later on in the New Testament, it's written this way. Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago... In many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So know that Jesus Christ is the eternal God. He is truly, fully God. He is the self-expression of God and the self-revelation of God to us. And now we'll see that he is also the creator of all things. In verses 3 to 5, the word in relation to creation and communicating ever since that time. And so we read in verse 3 through 5, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Just beginning with verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. All creation was made through him. He's the creator God, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We see that at the beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. And we're now made aware of this deeper identity of God in this infinite mystery and majesty. 
And the negative way to make the statement is a way to strongly emphasize what's being declared. He created everything. Make no mistake about it. That's exactly what the passage says. He created everything. The language is not subdued. The language is emphatic. He has priority, the Lord Jesus. He has preeminence. He reigns supreme over his creation. He continues with his creation by his presence and his activity in upholding all things. You know, the Apostle Paul at this time had already written the book of Colossians before John wrote his gospel. And here he writes about Jesus that he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation. Don't be confused, that word simply means preeminence over, uncreated. He's not created. That's the heresy of Arianism. He is preeminent over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's fully God. We should also notice that the word has been communicating from the very beginning. That's his nature before creation and since creation, especially since his incarnation and coming into the world and still in his exaltation. And so there's no excuse for anyone especially since the clearest communication of all in the history of the world has occurred. God became man. The Son of God has appeared and added to himself the human nature. He spoke through his creation. He spoke through his covenants. He spoke through his prophets. He spoke through Scripture. His history has, he's been directing and leading it all up to the final speaking, if you will, in the incarnation. The word also existed before his incarnation, as we read, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. I'm talking now about the people in the world, he is the source of life since he is God, having life in himself, being an eternal being. And this means all life here, physical life, spiritual life. That life is his to give and his to take. And, his, and Jesus Christ has been saving people even before his coming in their faith in the one to come. And of course, ever since then, and still from heaven, he works. Here, being the life is the source of light to all those who have been given life now that they can walk in the light because they have life. In other words, the life that's being spoken about here is regeneration, being made spiritually alive. And once that happens, then you have light. Now, some take this light as referring to common grace or to the imago Dei that we're made in the image of God or ethic, ethical rationality or general knowledge of God, but as the gospel account itself will show more fully, it's speaking about him giving life, and when he gives you life, he gives you light, and you can see. But nonetheless, it's also true that Jesus Christ at the same time is the source of spiritual life and light for the whole world, 
Jesus in John chapter 14 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is just one of numerous places in John's gospel and the rest of the New Testament where we hear such things. You see, the world has become a very spiritually dark place since the beginning, a dark place to live. That means that it's fallen in sin. And so spiritually ignorant, spiritually blind, and in rebellion under the domination of Satan, the evil one. The darkness is so dark that people no longer see. They can't see. The darkness is so dark that people don't have eternal life. The darkness is so dark that they live in an empty shell of a physical life that ends in death and eternal death. So we return to the themes of Genesis, of light and darkness. But now the Apostle John uses them in their spiritual and eternal state meanings, not physical. The light Namely, Jesus, it says here, shines in the darkness along with the creation that he created in this estranged world upon all of its dwellers, and the darkness has never been able to put out its light, nor will it ever be able to do so. His revelation stands, his salvation goes forward. Oh, darkness has tried to overpower the light. It started at the fall of humanity. And would much later, darkness would try to overcome the light at the cross of Calvary. And many other times in between. And even now in promoting falsity. In promoting temptations. In persecuting the people of God. And as soon as the incarnation would take place, the Apostle John is saying, that light that Isaiah foretold, that we read about in Isaiah 9-2, that light would become ever brighter. In John chapter 12, Jesus said, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You see, it would be a salvation invasion that the Son of God has led to destroy the works of the devil. So we've learned in this very opening section about Advent, the word in relation to his creation and how he communicates ever since then. The Apostle John has further purposes, which I think we can see, in using the term light. Because it was a common term at the time for those who pursued religion and spirituality, for those that pursued philosophy, similar to today. But the Apostle John is arguing that there is no eternally sparring dualism in this universe. But there's only the conquest of darkness by the one true light. That's the philosophy, if you will, of God. There is no eternal spiritual light in other religions, other philosophies, other moralities, other lifestyles, as they sometimes claim. Oh, there may be a bit of common grace sprinkled in there, but that would be it. Because all of these things are created out of, from within the darkness of the world, not from the revelation of the divine Son of God. 
And so the coming of the light into the world requires a choice, for there is no such thing as truly following God or having a true spirituality without following Jesus as the Word of God. He alone is the fullness of God. He alone is the true God. He alone is the direct revelation of God. He alone is clarity. He alone is revelation. The Apostle John wants us to know that Jesus Christ is the eternal God, the creator of all things. Remember the Apostle John's purpose for us this morning is to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that people will believe in him for eternal life. Even though he begins with such an intricate opening to his gospel account, he begins by telling us, though, that this word is our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. He has always been existing, existed prior to creation. He's always been communicating, and especially since creation. We must know who he is. We must know that Jesus is the eternal God and the creator of all things. And today we are told that he's the word, he's our God, he's the creator, he's the life, he's the light. Here is Advent meditation for this coming week. Oh, there's so much more to come in the Gospel of John and just the prologue about his excellencies as we read on, starting in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And he concludes his introduction, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So our purpose again in the Gospel of John for this Advent season is twofold. First of all, that we would all apprehend more of the glory of Christ. To apprehend something takes thinking. That's what it means to apprehend something. So it means that we all have to take time to read and to think through what we read in this gospel account. And then to delight ourselves all the more greatly in him and our union and our communion with him. To be able to delight in God requires prayer. And so as you think to apprehend, you can pray to delight.
Let me pray for us now. Lord Jesus Christ, we adore you this morning, for you are the eternal Son of God, eternally in the bosom of the Father, a holy trinity that now we understand and comprehend, yet a mystery so rich, so full, we will never fully understand it. But we praise you because you, Lord Jesus, are our God, you are our Savior, you are the life, you are the light. And we pray this morning, I pray that you would give us during this Advent season a new apprehension of your glory. Maybe it's just one new aspect that we have not yet seen. Maybe it's a barrage of things that we just have not seen in the Gospel of John before and in Scripture. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that by your Spirit you would cause us to delight all the more in who you are as our eternal God and Savior that you, Holy Spirit, would open our eyes wider, that you would cause us to see things about our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we have not yet seen. And may this season of Advent be one of even greater anticipation for our Lord Jesus' return a second time, a time when blessings will flow richly for his people. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>